Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In the Barbary Corsairs, Richard Thomas tells us about many centuries of piracy in the Mediterranean. Now, pirates, the Barbary Corsairs, we've all heard of pirates, pirates of the Caribbean, coast of Somalia recently, and the Bight of Benin. There's still very active piracy around the world. But it's all about sea trade. Anytime there's been sea trade, which is a long time, there has been piracy. And the Mediterranean was the home of the Barbary pirates who were operating from their bases in North Africa. The Barbary coast, which is where partly where the name comes from, main ports of the pirates, Tripoli, Tunis, Algiers, and Saleh in Morocco. It was for a while a major location of pirates in the I suppose we call it the late Middle Ages, 16th, 17th centuries. Piracy as an idea is not just connected to the high seas. Dad, I'm considering a career in organised crime. Dad asks government or private sector. Personally, I would suggest government, they never go to jail. So behaving illegally is not a new idea. Those chaps, those pretty boys from the Pirates of the Caribbean, no pirate ever looked like these two for two reasons. Partly, their complexions are not sufficiently haggard and weather-beaten, but mainly because they have good teeth, which would not be the case of most pirates. So let's make some definitions and so on. The definition of piracy is robbery on the high seas, and it flourishes when certain conditions apply, and these are the key conditions that piracy needs to, to prosper. Trade routes, obviously, but particularly narrow Choke points, gaps between islands, going round corners, the Straits of Gibraltar, for example, islands in the Caribbean, wonderful series of them. The Straits of Malacca, definitely wonderful choke point and therefore brilliant for pirates on both sides of those particular channels. Hiding places, islands, coves in the Caribbean, in the Mediterranean, and certainly in Indonesia, near the Straits of Malacca. You need trade and therefore you need something worth stealing. And over the years, it's been quite different. Gold was what animated the pirates of the Caribbean, dealing the Spanish treasure ships. Silks and spices, certainly in Asia, in the Straits of Malacca, and even the Red Sea, when people came to pay homage to Mecca, and they would bring their wealth with them, their silks and their gold and their jewellery, and they were therefore ripe for pirates. Slaves throughout history, really, including in the Mediterranean, and lots of rich people to ransom. They were certainly worth the pirates' time. It helps if you've got poor, weak, or no gov governance. Somalia has enabled these pirates there to prosper. Bribable politicians, bribable local governors, I think you can put anywhere that is likely to be the case. There was quite a lot of piracy off North America and, and indeed Canada before and after their independence because there were plenty of bribable politicians. And the best of all, and what we're going to see here, is imperial rivalry, which include actually religious rivalries, but imperial rivalries drive it. The UK, Spain, the Dutch and the French quite often on different sides. First and the fourth of those were Protestant, 
the middle two were Catholic, so they enabled pirates to plague each other. And in the Mediterranean, you had the Ottomans controlling most of the south part, i.e. North Africa, and Christians controlling the north part, i.e. the whole of Europe. Excellent place for piracy. We need to sort out the difference between a privateer and a pirate. Now, pirates were straightforward villains. These were operating outside the law, plundered ships, any type, any name, any flag uh, for their own profit. But many of them, you might even say most of them, that we'll be talking about and, and in history were privateers. They were official pirates given letters of mark, given a commission by their kings or rulers to go and plunder the other lot, whoever they were. Now, Francis Drake was a very good example. He was thought to be, you know, by us, a bit of a hero, jolly good chap, but he was a pirate, really, uh, by almost every other measure. Certainly, the Spanish thought he was a pirate. They offered about £4 million in our money reward on his head. We'd like to believe that he was very helpful against the Armada, but in fact, he spent most of the day chasing a pay ship. But his best thing that he did was to give a lot of his money that he got on his first hauls to Queen Elizabeth I. So she thought he was a good chap and gave him permission to carry on plundering wherever he could find stuff. I'll mention Barbarossa later. And so the official pirates, they, they raided ships of other nations. If it was a Protestant country, they'd raid Catholic ships. If it was a Muslim country, they'd raid Christian ships. And this was understood, really. There were, there were rules of the game. And the letters of Mark were your, literally your commission gave you permission to do so. And in reality, they became informal navies for European monarchs. In the Mediterranean, the Ottomans controlled North Africa, the Barbary coast, and they were often sent out as navies in times of war. And they were gradually replaced by state navies, but not really until the 18th century. And there was a gradual legal framework. They were given permission to protect convoys. If you were the other lot, you attacked those convoys. That was all right. That was cricket in those days. This began to be reduced as the official navies, the real navies, became stronger, particularly the British Royal Navy. But what's interesting is getting a letter of mark, getting official permission to be a privateer, was only technically outlawed in 1856, a very long time into our story. My talk is divided into, I suppose, well, two major chapters and a couple of beginning bit and an end bit. The two major chapters are the main story in the Mediterranean from the Reconquista, I suppose, is the key one of those. Other major chapter is the end of the period when the Europeans and the Americans began to fight back properly rather than just give in and accept it. And it ends really with the Battle of Algiers or possibly, you might say, 1830, when the French took over Algiers, so they did then get rid of the pirates. Let's go back to, to antiquity. Now, Odysseus, Homer's hero, attacked a settlement on the Thracian coast, and I quote, There I sacked a city and slew the men, and took from the city their wives and possessions. We divided them so that no man might feel deprived of an equal share. Then we flew with nimble foot. Uh, well, what was he after he wanted silver, gold, bronze, horses, cattle, sheep, women, above all, treasure and women. This was a perfect example of piracy in the raw. Now, Julius Caesar was famously captured by pirates in BC 74 or 75. He spent a few weeks with them, waiting for his ransom to arrive. Ransoming was already, even at this time, quite a common way of making money, and getting yourself ransomed was a way of getting out of it. 
So when they arrived, he complained that they'd asked too little for him. I'm more important than that, he said. He also said that as a, a senior Roman official, he would have to send a fleet to wipe them out. Anyway, they laughed and sent him merrily on his way. A few months later, a Roman fleet arrived. The captain said, Julius Caesar says he enjoyed his time with you, so he has asked us to be merciful. Normally, we would crucify you, but instead we will cut your throats and then crucify you, which is what they did. Now, later on, Pompey, uh, who became one of the three triumvirs, as we know from our Shakespeare and other things, was asked by Rome to sort out the problems of pirates in the Middle East. They were interfering with the vitally important grain trade, which was mainly with Egypt, post-Cleopatra, of course, when the Romans took it over. He was given 270 ships and was able to winkle them out and gradually push them back into their major base in Tarsus, which is in Anatolia. He asked them to give up their wicked ways and either join him or become farmers or businessmen. Now, many of them accepted because the alternative was to be killed, and those that did not accept were indeed killed. It is said thousands. This is unlikely. It's more likely to be a PR stunt to say, yes, thousands. But it was, it was a serious business, and the Romans from then on kept the Mediterranean, certainly the eastern Mediterranean, reasonably quiet. Quite a lot of facts there, but it gets us quickly through a thousand years. The seas were controlled first by the Greeks, then by the Romans, Caesar and Pompey I mentioned. North Africa from the 8th century, as we know, was ruled by Muslims. And they were very strong in the eastern Mediterranean, particularly after the Crusades, when the Christians kind of gave up. And Byzantium was powerful until the, the Fourth Crusade, when it began to weaken. And gradually, gradually, it gave way to the Ottomans, the whole of the eastern Mediterranean, including what we now call Greece, etc., some of what we call Italy and a lot of what we used to call Yugoslavia became Ottoman, and so did North Africa. The Italian waters were much more volatile, bits and pieces, lots of principalities, papal states, etc. And that they were traders and pirates. Venice made itself very rich on trading and trading with the Muslims, so fairly honest trade, uninterrupted because both sides benefited, so the pirates didn't, they weren't popular with either side. Genoa, on the other hand, was both trading and raiding. It made its money, basically, by being a pirate state. So they didn't all behave like, quotes gentlemen, as did the Venetians, sort of. The Moors controlled North Africa, but they used it as the base, which they did for another thousand years, literally, raiding the islands and raiding the small the port cities of Europe to strip them of citizens and sell them into slavery. In 1229, Menorca was stripped of people because it was taken over by the Muslims. The effect of Black Death on Europe everywhere was extraordinary. I mean, it had a massive effect on, on society, on trade, on people's trust in each other, and it enabled the Ottomans to expand. We Anglo-centric lot sitting in Britain will have forgotten just how important the Hanseatic League was, and the trade not just across the North Sea, but around into the Mediterranean. There was lively trade from the Hansa to the Mediterranean, Venice, Genoa, etc. These were major trading routes. The Dutch were involved, Venice was involved, the Ottomans and other kingdoms, Muslim kingdoms were involved. So there was a lot of trade going on, and therefore a lot to steal map of the Ottoman Empire showing just how widespread the Ottomans are. Morocco wasn't part of the Ottoman Empire, but it was a Muslim state. So it's the same difference in a way.
going a long way. And as we know, they got close to Vienna, but never quite made it. This is sort of the second chapter, if you like, the beginnings of what we refer to as the, the high period of the Barbary pirates. The first thing worth us to note is that they took Constantinople, which they've been gradually squeezing for uh, a long time and took it in 1453. Now, we like to think of 1066 or the Battle of Waterloo as earth-shattering dates. Well, they're quite important for us, but even more earth-shattering in world history terms was the Ottomans' conquest of Constantinople. Not that further forward, they took ships, Columbus took ships, flying the Spanish flag by luck, really, into the Caribbean, discovered gold and silver, and therefore Spain was shipping gold and silver back to Europe, and that opened up the doors for a wonderful trade in, for, for the pirates, stealing some of these ships. 1492, Spain finally removed the Moors from southern Spain, the Reconquista. And what was interesting about this, that religious intolerance intensified. It led to a particularly vicious inquisition in Spain. It led to the throwing out of even people of Muslim origins who had become Catholics. Perhaps many of them believed it. Certainly many of them did it because it made life easier. But they, these were thrown out or treated appallingly. And Spain carried on conquering bits and pieces and took Algiers, Tunis, Tripoli. And it's still, as you know, if you've been along the coast, it still controls uh, Ceuta, which is in, in North Africa, a little, a little enclave there. For 100 years, the Ottomans were fighting to remove the Spanish from that North Africa and carried on doing it, really, pushing them out, acquiring bits more until they sort of lost. It was a, a score draw. They sort of lost the, the Lepanto in 1571. Again, if you read the British and European history textbooks, the Europeans, the Christians won, full stop, great victory. If you read a little deeper, you realize it was essentially a draw. The Barbary Corsairs, they were a feature of life for anybody who lived or lived in or ventured around or traded across the Mediterranean. And during the high period, which is, say, from the end of what I'm talking about here, 1550 to 1750, they took something like a million people as captives and sold them into slavery from Spain and Italy. They stripped, it is said, a thousand coastal villages of their populations, which removes the mystery of why so many walls and forts are found whenever we travel to the East Mediterranean and why so many villages are sitting on the tops of hilltops which is not the sensible place to put a village, really. Again, the impact on society is hard to imagine. The entire population of Gozo was taken in 1551, and in 1558, the population of Huidadela in Minorca, which was by then back in Christian hands, was taken to Istanbul. There were also raids from Saleh out into the Atlantic. The raiders attacked Spain, southwest England, Ireland, and even went as far as Iceland, where they didn't find much, so they came back quite angry and, and raided other bits of Britain. Now, this raiding did slow down in the 18th century, but really didn't end until the Ottoman navies were defeated in 1816, so a long period. I said they were based along the north coast, but the question I want to ask is, who were they? Who were these corsairs? The oarsmen on the galleys and the common sailors on the ocean-going ships were, were mostly captured slaves with the occasional rather desperate free men. But the officers and captains were a very interesting bunch. Many of them 
it is argued up to half of them, so historically speaking, were people from Christian countries, seagoing nations like Greece and Albania, who sometimes as children and sometimes as adults uh, converted, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes forced, converted to Islam. Now, the only drawback uh, for an ambitious adult who decided, oh, I think I'll join these Ottomans and, and get promoted and become a sea captain, the only drawback was that they would have to get circumcised to become a Muslim. At the early period, some of among the most famous pirates were the Barbarossa brothers. There were actually four of them of Greek Albanian origin, and they worked for the Ottomans, I think, in this case, fairly willingly. One of them took over Algiers in 1515, not long after Spain had acquired it as this sort of continuation of the Reconquista, and was initially welcomed. But his period of control was rather brief because he was so cruel, the population welcomed the Spanish back in 1518, only three years later. When he was removed, so was his head and put on a spike at the city gates. Now, his brother Barbarossa, because of his ginger beard, was even more formidable. He took Algiers from Spain in uh, 1525 and was made an admiral by the Sultan. And he also attacked uh, Menorca and took slaves from there. And in 1538, he defeated a large fleet off France, helping the French against one of their enemies at the time. And after the battle, he parked his fleet in Toulon and refused to leave until a large bribe was offered. Having got his bribe, he left. So he was clearly a man of honor. These were some of the early pirates. And there is a wonderful picture of ocean-going galleys. Now, you see these are they're not rowing boats. They're major, important ships with their oars there attacking a modern sailing ship. Could have been in the, in the Western Mediterranean, or it could have been a Western trader. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what its flag says. They, if they sank, they sank. People died. But they were quite formidable. What is perhaps hard to understand, or perhaps hard to accept, is that armed galleys like that, a bunch of them, could defeat a sailing ship like that, particularly in the Mediterranean, where with relatively calm waters, though these are not very calm in that picture, and if there were modest tides and there were no Atlantic rollers, certainly, so a bunch of them could surround a sailing ship and board it and take it over. And this was what normal warfare was like in the Mediterranean in the 16th century. This didn't come to an end. The warfare perhaps came to, to an end or slowed down at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. And I said this dented but did not end Ottoman control of the Eastern Mediterranean. Neither side was completely dominant. And of course, the, the draw and the fact that nobody was quite sure who was in charge gave plenty of opportunities for pirates, whether they were flying Christian or Ottoman flags. The reason why this battle is so important, it did stop the Ottoman advance in the navies, in the sea. But it's famous for the fact that it was the last major sea battle between two fleets of galleys. The Ottomans had 235 galleries, the Holy League arguably more. Battles didn't last long. An eight-hour battle where the League won. It was Don John of Austria, about whom poets and Shakespeare have written, was in charge. And it was extremely important because the Christian countries worked together, which is also quite important. After that battle, things kind of settled down into the to kind of new normal when the northern part of the Mediterranean, i.e. southern France, etc., remained Christian, and North Africa was and stayed and remained Muslim. So the scene was set for a much longer historical period. I think a wonderful picture of Lepanto. Sails to assist, but they're still primarily driven by oars. They carried with them 
marines who would leap aboard the ship they were attacking. The galley slaves just sat there and rowed and did as they were told. The Venetian oared warships, slightly later period, it reckoned to be at Lepanto, that had 400 oarsmen. They also had guns, a forecastle and a castle at the back, which were beginning to look like modern ships, but still with the oars that enabled them to be rowed. And it's gradually turning into a galleas, which was a more modern type of ship. And further developments to the galleas, uh, really by removing the oars and adding a, a much more important quarter deck, led to an ocean-going galley. And these, these gradually changed over the decades. And while we're looking at ships, let's have a look at a couple more. A classic galley, late 16th century, obviously used only in the Mediterranean, too rough out at sea. That is something that would have been recognised, perhaps not totally, but recognised by the ancient Greeks. So not much in ship technology for 1,500 years, 2,000 years, but it was beginning to change. And the battles like Lepanto and the work of the pirates and the involvement of the sea dogs from the Mediterranean out into Morocco beyond the Straits of Gibraltar enabled the ship design to change rapidly. The ore power is what we're talking about. These were brutal treatment of the people on the oars, the slaves. They were captured seamen. They were captured from these raids on Huidadella and Gozo and other islands, particularly, obviously, the southern coasts of Europe, Spain, Italy, Greece. Now, they were the main power source, some uh, extra push from the ships when the wind was blowing from their sails. They would spend sometimes 100 days at sea, There'd be four to six per oar, perhaps 20 oars on the ship. They were shackled to the seat. They slept and ate at the oar. Not surprisingly, there was a pretty high turnover. And if they died, of course, they were just chucked overboard. And this meant that they were constantly needed to be renewed. So new slaves meant more raids, more attacks on ships, taking of crews and so on. So the incentive to get more slaves made the business of the galleys made the business of piracy bigger and bigger throughout the century. Now, these ships could do five knots, which is actually quite fast, and they could do more with sails if it was behind them pushing. So at five knots or seven, eight knots, because you had sails up, you could ram a ship, uh, probably not damage it particularly, but you could ram it, you could get close into it, grapple with it, and people, the soldiers, could run, rush it onto the ship and capture it. And finally, this is just a, an additional thing. These galleasses started with oars, then added cannon, added sail, and realized they could go faster if they were built just a bit differently, became galleons and got rid of the oars. The Zebek carried on a bit later. Again, mainly oars, more maneuverable. But what's interesting is one of the ships that helped to make Cochrane's name in the Napoleonic Wars was a Zebek. So these ships carried on being developed and, but they were built to last, and they did carry on as fighting ships until the 19th century. I've covered some of these points already. This is the early period where I've said where they're based. Uh, they took a million captives. Yes, they needed lots more. Yes. But we're moving into what you might call the, the high period, 16th through 18th century. And in that period, they raided Iceland, as I said. They raided Baltimore and Ireland. And they kept going in that period so that there's, say, there's a kind of new normal. This was for 200 years, what I'm about to talk about, just carried on. Very little change to the way pirates operated, the way the governments operated, the way the business of piracy operated. In that period, one of the people that became extremely important 
was Jan Junsen, who became Murat Rice, Rice, or means chief, became to mean admiral. He raided Ireland and took people from Baltimore in Ireland. If you're Irish, you would have heard of Baltimore. Apparently, 108 people were captured, sold as slaves. The story is that the person who told him which village that was kind of likely to be rich pickings uh, called Baltimore was a person who didn't want his own village to be taken over. And it is said that the Baltimore was a primarily Protestant village. And so the chap who sent them on their way to Baltimore was a Catholic. Uh, there was quite a lot of recrimination after that, as you can imagine. After Baltimore, he was captured by the Knights of Malta, who will come on to, and was rescued, but rescued in inverted commas, because of course he was a European, he was a Dutch privateer. But he felt that he was being rescued from the, the villains who were the Christians back to his friends who were the Muslims. I'm sure he could have refused to go, but he didn't refuse to go. So it's, it's an interesting sign that he was thoroughly approved of what he was doing and was well treated enough that he felt that he lay with the Muslims. And he retired, not to a ripe old age, but he was already about 70. So he retired to a comfortable old age in Morocco. This is a slightly odd sideways step. When I was a boy growing up, I was warned against, don't behave yourself or the Sally Rovers will come and get you. Now, these were the pirates from Sally. And what I hadn't quite known was that the island of Lundy, which is visible from parts of Exmoor just, was taken over by Jan Junson for five years in 1627. So I have a question. Do any of you remember being told about behave yourself or the Sally Rovers will come and get you? Or is this just restricted to Exmoor? I don't know the answer. Even Daniel Defoe knew about Sally, and uh, he ensured in around 1719 that Robinson Crusoe spent some time in Sally before escaping and carrying on with his adventures. So it was deeply embedded into the consciousness, the behavior of, of these pirates. So what happened to these 1 million plus people captured in the period from say 1550 to 1800? Perhaps 1750 is a better marker, but it did carry on after. Well, what they were really is rounded up and, and graded like meat or vegetables, I suppose, and sold in the most appropriate market. This chap would get a very good price because he was looked pretty fit and strong, therefore he would he would be sold to the highest bidder. But what happened to the others? Well, the treatment of slaves ranged from simply appalling to, you could argue, not too bad. There were two or three main things. The, the poor but strong ones worked in galleys or mines, and if they worked in galleys, the chances are you die after a couple of trips. A lot of them lived in banyos, large prisons sort of open prisons, but you'd better be there after curfew. People were trusted to return to the banyos in the evening. Women did domestic work, quite a lot of them, or they were sold into brothels. Now, the best looking of them went to harems in Istanbul or Algiers. The others did a whole range of jobs, but, but pretty nasty, many of them. And some were ransomed. Um, if they were rich or well-connected, like um, Cervantes, Don Quixote, 1575, he, he was ransomed. And what's also interesting, and I come across, come upon this a bit later, 25% of them, at least, became renegades, uh, i.e. they became Muslims. And some of the seamen were volunteers. Some thought being a galley slave really could not be worse, so they may as well become a Muslim and at least be, you know, holding the whip in the galley or holding the whip in the, in the mines rather than being there to die within a few months. People like Cervantes were often released because of the activities of the redemptionists, 
Now, these were a fascinating bunch of people. There was a Christian missions, really, dedicated to redeeming, buying back the captured slaves. Uh, there were at least two orders who started life in the Crusades, where, of course, the same story happened. So people from Europe would go to the Crusades, try and get home and get lost or get hijacked, get captured, and therefore they would be not able to get home unless somebody came to redeem them, pay for them. The story seems to be they did indeed collect money from Europe, go out as priests, redeem slaves and bring some of them home. But it also suggested that they had very high administrative costs, which is modern management speak for saying they looked after themselves pretty well before putting much effort into redeeming captives. But they did exist. What's interesting about the Trinitarians and the hospitalers that they actually became the St. John's Ambulance Brigade in the modern era. Now, renegades, I mentioned the renegades. Who were these renegades? Well, many of the English and European renegades were ex-privateers, sometimes just plain pirates. Many of them had worked in the British Navy or they worked on, on privateers in the Caribbean. Uh, they perhaps worked as pirates, essentially, to capture Spanish ships. But when things became slightly cleaned up, they got bored. And Captain Jack Ward, a well-known renegade, was fought bravely for the British in the Spanish War. And when it finished, he got, oh, what can I do next? He decided he would do a bit of raiding in the Mediterranean, rather successful at it, and put through in his lot with the Tunisian government and became very rich as a official Ottoman privateer. And he died uh, rich and comfortable in Tunis in 1622. Gradually, in the 17th century, Dutch corsairs, they improved the sail technology because of you know, they were Dutch first and they were renegades second. So thanks to the inventions of other countries, the quality of seamanship and the sail, the sail technology, the design of the boats moved ahead absolutely rapidly. And this allowed them to move into the Atlantic. So Murat Rice was able to raid Ireland and Iceland because of ship's technology. Um, just a slight detail on the story of Captain Mannering, interesting name. After a career as a pirate, he decided to return to England. But he said throughout his life, he never attacked a British ship. He'd always attacked nasty ships, ships, either Ottoman ships or Catholic ships, perhaps just as bad, and thought, if I go back home, they might pardon me. So he did, after a good career of being a pirate, he did get his pardon. He was knighted, became an MP, and ended up as the Vice Admiral of the British Navy. You couldn't usually make it up, but this is what happened to him. Now, not everybody became a renegade. Captain Babcock refused to become a renegade to join them. Apparently, he was a very unpopular captain, so his crew refused to support him. And they said to the Ottoman sailors that had got hold of him, go ahead, cut his arm off. Whether it was done or not, I don't actually know. But the idea of people switching was sometimes encouraged. I mean, sure, if you said to a, a captain or a bosun or a carpenter on a ship, somebody with a skill, you know, please join us. You're a good, experienced captain. Uh, you can either join us or we'll cut your arm off and throw you overboard. So what are you going to do? I think they might reconsider their first refusal and accept. And of course, many of them then did well, became thoroughly respected members of the community and quite rich. So for a few of them, it was quite a good offer. 
Even as late as 1815, Captain Croker seeing the European slaves going into the harbour. And so Christian slaves were still there even in 1815. 200 years, lots of changes in ship technology, lots of places stripped of their population, some redeemed, many died, the trade continued. But a sort of a detail of that, the British ships tended not to be attacked. The reason was quite simple. The British Navy was growing in strength and therefore they could fight back. And also they decided that they didn't mind uh, if other rivals were harassed. So British and Dutch ships relatively unharassed because they had an agreement with the Muslim seamen, people like Moret Reis, who after all was Dutch, don't attack our ships. You can attack Catholic ships, yes, and you also must not attack British ships. British ships must not attack Ottoman ships. It still left other countries whose ships could be attacked. In 1683, the French, who were a kind of medium-sized navy, they decided to fight back after an outrage. Now, the outrage consisted of firing 30 French citizens based in the enclave, including their consul firing them out of cannons because they had failed to follow the correct protocols of behavior as foreign citizens, and therefore they were forced to pay the price. There was a lot of incidents during this period, but essentially the pattern was fairly well set. There were peace treaties, they paid ransom and tribute, as I've mentioned, paying ransom for the Trinitarians was quite common. And there was some retaliation. And the story of the Knights of Malta is what I want to spend a couple of minutes on now. Many of the Knights were French, which is interesting, and therefore they were, could be attacked by the Ottomans, because if they were French ships, Knights ships, they were to be attacked. Now, the Knights of Malta, Knights of St. John, I think I just said the previous lot were St. John's Ambulance. It was this lot that was St. John's Ambulance, I'm sorry. They were descendants of the Knights Hospitaller who had started in the Crusades. They were the ones that turned into the St. John's Ambulance Brigade. They operated in the Mediterranean from 1530 to 1798. There was an end date. They were removed from Rhodes by Suleiman in 1522, granted control of Malta in 1530. And they fortified Malta over the next decade, centuries, really. If you've been to Malta, the quality and just sheer amount of fortifications around Malta do suggest they were constantly expecting to be attacked. They were licensed by the Pope to attack only Ottoman shipping. So they were legally privateers, but they felt just in attacking the ships of other nations if they looked suspicious. Any of them can look suspicious. And weak nations that couldn't fight back, like some of the minor Italian states, they certainly attacked them. And they built up into a formidable fleet, 40 ships, 4,000 men, including a lot of galleys, rowed, of course, by Muslim slaves that they had captured. And what is fascinating about the Knights of Malta in this period is that it's a 200-plus year period. They became a mirror image of the Barbary pirates and just as brutal. Instead of saying we're Christian knights and we must behave ourselves and behave like gentlemen, they were just as barbaric as the worst. Now, Malta, of course, is perfectly placed to be the controllers of the sea routes 
in the middle of the Mediterranean. People coming in from Gibraltar and off to the Middle East had to go past Malta. Trading with Spain, France, Italy had to go past Malta. So it was wonderfully placed. A choke point, a key location, places for them to return to and places for them to leap out of and attack foreign ships and, and raise taxes and get their own slaves for their own galleys. And what's interesting is that Tripoli and Tunis are really quite close by. They, the Knights of Malta, had a big impact on the Tunis and Tripoli pirates, but not on the ones of Algiers, which is a little bit further away. The people they had on their galleys were mostly slaves, some free men. The status of the free men was marked by the fact they were able to grow a moustache and that they were shackled by only one leg. And if the slaves had served a long term, they could be released, presumably because they were getting weaker and weaker. However, there's a story of one 80-year-old, an Egyptian, who asked for his release, but it was refused. The killing and the attacks and the violence and blah, 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 it was done by both sides. It was a pretty tough time. If you were boarded by either Muslim or by the Knights, you could expect to be injured or enslaved. It was not a cosy operation at all. The last major chapter, the American response. The third thing I said is that there was a gradual European response, and the Americans responded. The thing they did, the Americans, for some obscure reason, I never understood, they decided to become independent and declare their independence in 1776. And Morocco, which was not part of the Ottoman Empire, Morocco, recognized them as an independent country, to which the Americans said, thank you very much. And then very quickly, they seized an American ship because it was now no longer protected by the British Navy, which was the only serious Navy in the neighborhood, and certainly the one that might enable the Moroccans to be forced to give it up. So they took some American captives. Others were taken to Algiers, where they stayed for at least 10, 15 years, and many of them died. The American independence wasn't always a brilliant idea. Now, in 1794, which is not the following week, it was quite a long time after the U.S. Navy and Marines were formed. And Thomas Jefferson and James Madison had two strategies. One was to build their Navy and Marines, and they began to do this in 1794. But the other was to pay tribute. Not many Americans know this. They know the first thing I just said. They had a peace treaty with the major states along the North African coast. But in 1800, 20% of the budget of the U.S. government was paid as tribute to the Barbary governments. Not every American is aware of this. But they did build their navy, and gradually they decided to fight back. But in 1801, the tribute was not paid, and as a result, Tripoli declared war and Morocco declared war on the US, and President Jefferson decided to fight back. There were lots of skirmishes, but there was a fairly major confrontation in 1803, and the key to which was an overland attack on Tripoli. And those of you that know the US Marine Corps song, anthem really, it begins with, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, we fight our country's battles in the air on land and sea. Now, the air was added in 1942. But this is not Tripoli, Florida, but Tripoli, North Africa, where the U.S. Marines won their spurs. Now, there was a further series of engagements, etc., which led to a rather insecure peace. And at least from the American side, they had a, an agreement with the people along Africa not to attack American ships from about 1805. The key agreement was with Tripoli, which was important, but not Algiers 
which was even more important. Almost none of you will have heard of these two characters, but certainly every American has heard of Stephen Decatur. William Bainbridge pays a tribute, but then when they wasn't paid, they fought back. And Stephen Decatur, as a young officer, was called to do the first round of fighting. He then was the hero of the hour when he led the American Navy to attack Algiers and other places and make sure that these treaties with the Americans was pressed home and accepted by the states along the northern part of Africa. He was a rather an impressive man, and he fought in a hand-to-hand fighting as well as being the, the captain, and he negotiated the treaties. And he would have gone on to much greater things in America had he not been killed in a foolish duel in 1820 when he was only 41. One of the aspects of the attack on Tripoli was this fire ship which blew up in shore and set fire to a number of Ottoman galleys. And in the confusion caused by this, the attack was pressed home. What's interesting is this ship was the USS Philadelphia, which ironically was a captured British warship. Although the Americans had agreed a peace treaty of sorts with most of the people along the North African coast, the European powers had not. And nor were they able to concentrate on the Barbary coast until the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815. Plenty of skirmishes, but nothing final. So there was a lot of toing and froing during the period of the Napoleonic Wars. The fight back was led by Lord Exmouth, a genuine naval hero. He fought in the Napoleonic Wars. He had active service. He led the campaign against the Barbary states, and he's buried in Tenbeth Devon. He was the guy that led the European, many British, but also Dutch and others, in 1815-16. So the final period, then, of the piracy is the Congress of Vienna ended the Napoleonic Wars, enabled a united approach from the Allies, including actually some ships from the French. Uh, They didn't need to befriend the Barbary states. They were desperate after the war to open the sea lanes and get better trading through the Mediterranean so that they could re-establish their links with the Orient via Lebanon and so on. They didn't need it quite as much as they had previously because by now trade, of course, around Africa uh, with the Caribbean, with Latin America was much more important to them. But still, Mediterranean was an important trading site. Mediterranean treaties, Americans versus the Algiers, etc., was established, and by 1815, they were fairly well settled. But the Dutch and the British were getting fed up with this, so they, they decided to take on the, the particularly Algiers. And Algiers would say, no, we don't want to sign a treaty with you. We've signed a treaty with the Americans. We've lost some of our money. Our money comes from stealing cargo or genuine trade, uh, stealing some cargoes, getting tribute from the Americans and others, exchanging slaves, etc. We're not going to sign a peace treaty with you. But Lord Exmouth and the British Navy decided to fight harder. And at the battle, there's, there's two battles, really, but the, the, the final battle of Algiers was not a walkover. The British lost, killed or wounded 16% of their entire naval strength, which is a higher percentage than any other battle before or since. So it was a serious piece of fighting, and the North African states, particularly Algiers, were not going to give in willingly. But the Allies did win, and when they opened up Algiers, they found 1,600 
European slaves who were released. And the day of Algiers promised to end the practice of enslaving European prisoners. But it didn't really end until 1830, when the French colonized Algiers. As late as 1825, several smaller nations, including Sweden, Denmark, Portugal, and Naples, were paying tribute to some of the Barbary states. And so the threat of piracy continued much lower order until 1830, Exmouth's bombardment of Algiers in 1816. 1815, he had a few skirmishes and attacks and didn't press it home, went back to London and said, what am I supposed to do? And they said, they'll basically go back and sort them out. Basically, he didn't want to break what the treaties were. In 1816, it was war, quite simply. A couple of points to end with. Piracy today. Now, what's interesting is the Mediterranean is not mentioned in that. Um, plenty of piracy still going on in the Mediterranean, no doubt about it. Basically to do with drugs. Piracy around Bight of Benin, not based on Lagos, but that's where Lagos is. It's based on the oil production places further east. It's to do with stealing oil. The Somali pirates stealing ships. Back to ransoming. It's been going on since the beginning of time. South China Sea, Malacca Straits, lots of different islands, thousands of islands, uh, small-scale trade, you know, ships that are not very well protected. So that is probably the biggest source of piracy in the world today. My final key point is, why do we think that pirates are such jolly good chaps? It's all terribly amusing. We think they're lovable rogues, but they were violent, murdering criminals, many of them. Now, you can say that pirates and the licensed corsairs were cut above the rest, but they were recruited from amongst the criminal classes and because they were willing to be violent and murderous. And in English literature, we have Treasure Island with a lovable, in quotation marks, Long John Silver. If Treasure Island is about anything, it's about the fact that adults will always let you down. Not, not a cheering thought. The Pirates of Penzance is very jolly, but the premise is utterly stupid. The fact that they're all orphans and the love of a good woman will transform them. Well, OK, maybe. And so many of these chaps are built up as heroes, but they're not. They're extremely nasty people, some of them. At the siege of Toulon, I mentioned with Barbarossa, the French developed their, their, their battle cry. They were sitting there waiting to be able to go out to sea and fight. And so the battle cry in, in English was to the water, the hour has come, or in French, allo sailor. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.